The scripture reading from this morning uh, is from James 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my fellow brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks. Glad that you are all here. And what is up with all of you being on time for like the first time in the history of Grace Community Church? It might have something to do with uh, going back to two services, and this is no longer the 8 o'clock service. Well, maybe you thought it was, and that's why you were on time. Uh, Regardless of why you're here on time, thank you for coming on time. Keep it up. Uh, Because we've gone back to two services, it is tighter in here. So it's probably more important that you're on time if you want to actually find a seat and not be ushered up as, as purgatory in the front row or penance, because I do spit when I talk, and fair warning. So thank you all for being here. Glad that you're here. One quick uh, housekeeping announcement before we get into the message. Um, you know, we have a big crowd this morning here in the first service, and uh, we'll probably have a, a big crowd in the second service. And whenever there's a crowd, things are just weird anymore. It's not, not the case maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, but you guys watch the news. You see stuff happens and, and, and nefarious people find their way into, into innocent communities and, and they sometimes wreak havoc. And we have a safety and security team. I want you to let, let you know that there are people watching, people um, uh, looking out for the body of Christ, not just guarding doctrine, but uh, guarding the sheep from literal ish wolves that that that, that want to do want to do harm and so our safety and security team not only does that but they're also looking out for medical needs and so forth and so on if that's something that you would ever be interested in we still have needs with that particular ministry uh see ryan mcfadden Aaron Granquist, they're going to be out under the awning, out as you just enter the church. There's a table out there, and you'll see a couple guys there. And if that's something that you think, you know, I might be interested in serving in that way, please, please see them. So this morning, we're kicking off a new series. It's in the book of James. But before we get to the series, I want to start with a question, and that is this. Do you, do you have faith? 
That's a yes, no question. It's, now, now, here's the deal. All of you have faith in something. The question is, what do you have faith in? What is your faith in? I think most Americans would say that they are people of faith. Not all. There are certainly a, a smaller percentage in, in the United States and in a Western civilization that say they are atheists. They have, but they have faith in something. But even those who, who, who have faith and, and they say faith in God, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? You believe in the historical person uh, of Jesus Christ, the, the incarnate Son of God, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and that He atoned for sin. Do you, do you believe those, those, those truths, those historical truths about what the Bible claims to say about the person of Jesus? And, and to, the, to the next follow-up question is, if that is so, to what end? What is your faith actually securing? I mean, what good is it? What does it do for you? If it is faith in Christ, or maybe you don't have faith in Christ. I don't presume to believe or understand or know all of you. Certainly some of you don't have faith in Christ. If you have faith in something, what do you expect that faith to secure for you? What is it that you are believing and why are you believing it? That's, that's the question. So think about that. Whatever you believe in, and for many of you, that is Jesus as being Savior for your sin, what is your faith securing? I probably shouldn't do this, but I pay attention to bumper stickers. They interest me. They interest me. I saw the strangest, I saw the strangest bumper sticker of moving my daughter into Davenport. They moved. Son-in-law is going to PA school at St. Ambrose, and and I saw a, a bumper sticker that said, I love meth. There you go. Super. Good for you. Okay. I, I didn't know that people wanted to, the world to know that they love meth. But this particular person loves meth. But that's not a bumper sticker I would put on the back of my car. And I hope that none of you would put that on your car either. But some of you may put this one on. And that is, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Don't raise your hand if you have that as a bumper sticker. Uh, don't raise your hand if you have that as a bumper sticker. But I want you to think about that. How many of you have heard that said before? Maybe you've even said it. I've said it. I don't have it as a bumper sticker. But I've said the phrase, well, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven as a Christian. Okay, now, for those of you that have that on the back of your car... Let me, let me explain what the good thing that that communicates. There is something good that that communicates, and, and that is this. The reason that that statement exists is to dispel the myth or the misconception in our culture that Christians actually think they're better than everybody else. And I think what that tries to do is let the world know, hey, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm not perfect. I don't have my act together. I still... I'm not going to say what I was thinking, but I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with sin. I'm just like you. But as a Christian in Christ, he's atoned for my sins and I'm forgiven. I think that's the idea behind that. But what's the problem with that, that statement? As it's, and this is why tweeting and, and bumper stickers don't capture the essence of, of anything of depth. What's the problem with that? Can anybody see it? It's the word just. What does just mean? I mean, it has a variety of meanings, but in this context, it means exactly, simply, or only. 
So are you just forgiven? Is that, is that the sum total? Is that the essence of your faith? Well, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. I think that's part of the problem of, of Christianity and Western civilization is that we actually think that the sum total of our faith means we're just forgiven. I'm, no, I, I struggle with self-control and I'm into pornography or I, I can't control my language or I can't control my drinking or I can't control my eating. I can't control my tongue. I'm kind of a jerk to my family, but I'm forgiven. Do you, do you see that the problem here is that we're not just forgiven. If you or I are in Christ, we are new creations. Yes, you have been forgiven. I am forgiven. I've received a pardon for sin. But I have also received the Holy Spirit. And if you're in Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit. And you've received the righteousness of Christ. And when the Father looks on you, he sees an adopted heir in Christ whom he has given his Holy Spirit and wants to make you a new creation. Not someone who's just forgiven, but who is forgiven and is being perfected into the image and likeness of Christ. So we're going to start a new series this morning on the book of James. And to that end, he writes to a group of Christians who are identifying professing Christians, but who may have just assumed that being a Christian means that they're just forgiven. It means a lot more. James writes to a group of Christians... Who, and he wants to compel the idea that your faith ought to produce works. Your faith ought to transform you. Yes, a pardon. Yes, heaven. But it ought to also transform us and make us into new people. New people that reflect and bear the image of God in a way that brings glory to the Father by everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we think. No, we're not perfect, but we are far more than forgiven. Three things we're going to look at in the verses that were read, verses 1 through 18 in the, uh, in the book of James chapter 1. We're going to look at faith's outcome. What is the end game here? Yes, there's a pardon, but what is the, what is the end game? What is the, the final product in the person who is forgiven? We're going to look at the outcome, first first four verses, we're going to look at the need, what's required, what do we need to receive in addition to faith that's going to help us reach that outcome. And the third thing is faith's object. Where are we going to find, where's the resources that we find that need in verses 5 through 15. So please open up your Bibles to the first chapter of James. Let's pray and we'll get right into the text. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. We are grateful for that, that Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross and we have a pardon for sin. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, we ask that you would open up minds, open up hearts, and, and make hearts that are dead in sin alive in you. And Father, hearts that are, are, are discouraged, encourage them. Hearts that are apathetic, Lord, would you please light a fire in those hearts. Hearts that are hard, would you soften them? Would you bring brokenness so that we might be made whole where there is pride? Lord, we just ask that you would do a work this morning and that we would move. We would move closer to you, closer to one another, and live out a faith, Lord, that brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Okay, let's get in the text. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of this epistle, most individual scholars, historians believe this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, Jesus' little brother, son of Mary, son of Joseph, son of Joseph. Now, James, initially, when you see him throughout the four Gospels, anytime Jesus interacts with his family, they think he's nuts. They think he's nuts. John chapter 7, verse 5, clearly states that none of his brothers or sisters believed in him. They thought he was delusional. And honestly, if he's not the Son of God, he was delusional, the things that he said. It's like, bro, you can't say the things you're saying. No, no, you don't have the authority to forgive sins. You're not the bread of life. I mean, imagine if your brother started saying the things that Jesus said. So James is not initially a believer. He becomes a believer later on. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 through seven, 3 through 7, Paul says that what I received from the Lord I passed on to you, that Jesus was de- uh, dead, buried, and crucified, and rose again on the third day, and appeared to Peter, appeared to the apostles, appeared to the women, appeared more than 500 people at the same time, appeared to James, and then he says, and also to me, as one who was supernaturally born. So, James didn't become a follower of his older brother, the Son of God, until after the resurrection appearance. And then he became a leader in the early New Testament church in the town of Jerusalem. Now, take a look here. Who is he writing to? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's metaphorical. The 12 tribes ceased to be after the first 10 tribes, the northern 10 tribes, were carted off to Assyria. Uh, and, and then dispersed, and then the two tribes, southern two tribes, were carted, carted off and taken to Babylon, and this was 500 years ago. So he's not talking to the literal 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking about the body of Christ, the new Israel, the church, which has been dispersed because of the persecution. If you've ever read the book of Acts, when Saul uh, persecuted uh, Stephen, the first martyr, it says that at that moment there was a great persecution, and the Jews that were in Jerusalem that became Christians scattered to the four corners of the earth. They all left. They headed out of town. They were avoiding persecution. So that's who he's writing to. These are mostly Jewish Christians who became Christians, see Acts chapter 2, while they were in Jerusalem at the festival of Pentecost. And then they heard the gospel preached by Peter. And it says that 2,000 were saved at that day. And then 4,000 and then 5,000. So the church, the early church in Jerusalem were mostly all Jewish Christians. And then the persecution started and they all fled. And James is writing these people. He was a leader of the church in Jerusalem and he's writing these Christians who have scattered to the winds. So that's who he's writing. Now, what does he say to them? Verse two, count it all joy. There are two commands here. So the recipients of this letter, the early Christians, which are all scattered, and 2,000 years later, you and I, Christians today, it's for us too, two commands in verses two through four. We're supposed to count something and we're supposed to let something happen. First of all, the count. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, just a word to the wise. When someone is really in a lot of pain, they just got a cancer diagnosis, it's malignant, five months to live. 
your friend, they tell you that their spouse is cheating on them and their heart has been torn out. Whatever the case, it's probably not wise for you to counsel them to put on a happy face and just consider it all joy. You say, well, that's what James says. Well, be wise. That is what James says, but what's the context here? Understand this. So some of you have heard this story. When I first entered ministry, um, my wife got sick. She had Lyme disease and it went undiagnosed from 1998 to 2004. That's a long time to go undiagnosed with a disease. So by the time, right before she was diagnosed, she got really, really, really bad, non-functional, couldn't get out of bed. Her extremities felt like they were on fire all the time. Neurological disorders, not able to sleep, intestinal disorders, migraine headaches. She got to the point where she just wanted to die. She wanted to go home. And there were times, there were times when I, she couldn't sleep at night and I would, I would stay up with her. I would just kind of, it was an all night vigil and I would say, I'll be in the other room and I'll be praying the Psalms. And at that moment, I didn't feel the joy. And I can tell you at that moment, in those dark nights, my wife was not feeling the joy. And I think if someone were to come over to her house and says, Brooks, you just need to count it all joy, I might have punched them. (laughs) And I think if someone in your context, if you're in your deepest, darkest moment, and someone rebuked you in the sense, well, you need to count it joy because the script, how many of you, you would feel, you would feel, you would feel insulted like that person is minimizing your pain. Anybody? Yeah, that's normal. That's normal. Then what's he talking about? You know, Paul says something, rejoice. Paul Paul uses the same kind of language. Rejoice, count it all joy. What are they getting at? Are they masochists? Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, that trials, the word, it, it just means circumstances that test your faith of various kinds, of all kinds. They could be trials of your own doing because you made some dumb decisions, you created pain for yourself. You could be totally innocent and just an innocent bystander and life happens and it happens and it happens hard. And, but nonetheless, the idea here is, is that these trials are painful. You meet various kinds of trials for you know that the testing of your faith, these trials are testing the faith, testing as, as in proving it proving it, showing it to be genuine, testing your faith. What does it produce? It produces something. What's the text say? Steadfastness. It means endurance. It means endurance. I mean, you, you know, you, oh, I got great New Year's resolutions. I'm going to start out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then you get a couple weeks into it and you're just like, well, this is hard. I quit. Trials have a, have a, have a way of really solidifying whether or not, do I really believe this? You know, four years into this disease and nothing's changed, do I still believe in the goodness of God? Do I still believe in the sovereignty of God? Do I still believe that He is always good all the time? Because when you're in pain and the pain doesn't go away, that's when you start wondering if, okay, do I really believe though? Is this really true? Or is this just what Mark said? This is just an opiate for the masses. It tests our faith. So we're to count it all joy. That means you're to, to grab a hold of intellectually. 
Grab a hold of what this pain is producing. What this pain is producing is it's producing steadfastness. It's producing endurance. That doesn't mean you're... James is not saying enjoy the pain. No, no, Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. But he did count it joy. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He didn't enjoy it. He endured it because of the joy that he knew it was going to produce. And that's what, that's what James means. Consider, count, take a hold of intellectually what this pain you're going through right now is going to produce. Next command, verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That verbiage means that you're, you have to submit yourself. Let steadfastness have it. You are the passive recipient of pain. And what James is saying is you have to give that over to God and say, okay, God, I'm not enjoying this, but I'm going to trust you that you are going to make something happen out of this that I don't understand. And I'm going to let you work this in me to produce something good. What does he say? Let it have its full effect that you may be what? Come again? Perfect. And complete, lacking nothing. So much for the bumper sticker. No, I'm not perfect. No, you're not perfect, but God is perfecting us in Christ. That's the the outcome. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you serious? Well, actually, yes, he is. Jesus always says what he means, and he always means what he says. That doesn't mean that what he says is, is, is not difficult to understand, but here's what he's saying. That's the outcome. That's the outcome of your faith. Now, what does he mean by perfect? It means holy, set apart, complete, pure. It's progressive. It's not instant. Yeah, I became a Christian, and no, I didn't all of a sudden become perfect, but I am being perfected. And if you are in Christ, you are forgiven, but you're not just forgiven. You are holy in Him. You have been set apart, and He has a plan, and His plan is to perfect us. And there's pain involved. There is pain involved. Paul puts it this way, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, that is, make you holy perfectly. May he sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Who does it? Who does the perfecting? You don't do the perfecting. He does the perfecting. Now we're not passive. We have to let steadfastness have its effect. That is something we have to allow. We participate in it, but he's the mover. He's the prime mover. And he wants to use whatever it is we're going through to to make this come about. He's faithful. He will surely do it. But he is going to do it, and you're more than just forgiven. You're more than just forgiven. I love this verse. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on the way down to Kansas City um, last week, Stacy and I, it was our 33rd anniversary, wanted to go see a concert, Jackson Brown, because we're old, and, and uh, we're listening to a t- Tim Keller sermon, and he was preaching on th- this verse, 
And this is Paul uh, speaking of the church in Corinth. So we don't lose heart. And he, before that, he just talked about all of his trials, his tribulations. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been beaten multiple times. I've been hungry. I've been all of these horrible things. And so here's the context. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, (laughs) really, yeah, this light and momentary affliction, what about it? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. So we're driving down, we're listening to this series, and and by the way, the, the question that I'm linking to this verse had nothing to do with the sermon that we were listening to, at least that we thought. So my wife, we were going to go eat barbecue, and she said, okay, conversation for when we get to the place. Question, 33 years of marriage, what are, when we, when we have dinner, what are the sweetest memories that you think you can think of for our marriage? So we're driving, you know, it's four and a half hours to Kansas City. So this, I'm thinking about the sweetest memories that I have 33 years of marriage. And I'm thinking, there were some, some real funny moments that, that was up there. But the other, like three of the top five, three of the top five, if I look back, they all have to do with intense pain. In hindsight, I'm looking back at something that in the moment, in the moment, if someone said, Brooks counted all joy, I would have throat punched him. But 30 years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, that's the sweetest top five moment of my marriage to my wife. And I'm thinking that, and we sit down and we're having dinner, and she says, one of the sweetest moments that she has are the times that I would stay up all night and pray for her as she was in pain. I want you to look at verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me tell you what that means. What it doesn't mean is that heaven is a consolation for what you're going through. That's not what it means. What it means is that God is using what you're going through to create in you an eternal weight of glory. He's using the very thing that you're, you're fighting against and that's painful to bring about glory. It's not a consolation prize. It's not compensation. It is a direct result of it. For this light and momentary affliction, is pre- it is preparing the very pain itself. This is what James is alluding to. And it's crazy because her sweetest memories in the moment were her worst nightmare. Is that not profound? That's what it means. That's the text. That's the God that we serve. He uses those things. And that's what the cross is. The worst human injustice in the history of the world brings the sweetest result. not crying it's just my eyes get sweaty when i <laughs> when i work out spiritually <laughs> and
and now I can't see because it ruins my contacts. So, so anyway, there you go. Let's, let's move on here. So what do we need? Okay, that's a reality. We can all, oh, that's a profound truth. Yeah, but how do you get to the point where what is painful becomes sweet, where you can actually rejoice? You know, the sun, when it comes out, it bakes clay and hardens it, but it melts wax. And for some of you, the same trials that you're going through, they're hardening you, but they're softening somebody else in this room. How do you get, how do you become that person whose heart right now is hard and every time you go through a trial and something negative happens, an injustice or, or, a, or a circumstance, how do you go from the place where, where that is just something that makes you bitter and more angry and more distant from God to it, it, it sweetens your spirit and it's working an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison? How, what, 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 what do we need? What do I need? Well, faith, yes, but what about it? Well, let's, let's keep reading. If any of you lacks wisdom... It's the next thing that James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, what does he assume there? He assumes that for you to count it all joy, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for no one who doubts, for the one who doubts, rather, is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, let's break this down here. First of all, what wisdom isn't? It's not intelligence. There's zero correlation between IQ and wisdom. Just read the op-ed pieces and some, some of the most intelligent people in the world, the things that they write are complete nonsense. You, you're aware of this, right? So there's no correlation between intelligence, IQ, and wisdom. Nor is wisdom the ability to see and know what God is doing through the trial you're going through. That's not what James means. James is not meaning, he's not saying, Brooks, what you and Stacy needed to do back in 1999 and 2000 when Stacy was really in pain, if you had wisdom, you'd see what he was doing with this. That's not it. God does not give us a supernatural ability to see all that he does with everything that's going on. He doesn't give us his, his capacity to know the end from the beginning. So what is wisdom? wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to do what's right in each and every circumstance. It has to do with practical behavior. It's, it's the ability to do what is right in every circumstance, to respond rightly. So said trial, the sun comes out, and the clay responds by becoming hard. Well, the clay's foolish. The wax responds by becoming soft. Well, the wax is wise. Now, that's a metaphor, but in your context, whatever it is that approaches you, and yes, it's painful. The sun is hot. The sickness it, it robs you of your health. It robs you of, of pleasure. The, relational, the relation that fell apart, it, t- it ripped your heart out. There's real pain. I'm minimizing the pain. What are you going to do in response to the pain? The pain's the pain. You can't change the pain. What are you going to do? If you're wise, if you're wise, you pray for wisdom. Lord, help me to respond rightly to whatever I'm going through. That's wisdom. 
That's what wisdom is. Now, what is wisdom's enemy? Verse 7. That person must not suppose he will receive any from the Lord. He's double-minded. Double-mindedness is the enemy of wisdom. Here's what double-minded wisdom is. Here's what double-minded, double-mindedness is. Double-mindedness is the, is, says to God, God, I believe what you say is true, but I don't believe obedience to, to you at this moment will be advantageous for my life. So yes, I know, Jesus, you died for me. I know you love me. I know that you conquered death. I know that you rose again. I know that you are omniscient. I know that you're all good. And I know that what I should do, according to the scriptures, is follow this path. But I look down the road, and that path looks painful. So I'm going to go this way because it's going to maximize my comfort and minimize my discomfort. That's foolish. That person is double-minded. Why? Because on the one hand, they say, yes, God, you are wise, but their actions reveal that they're not going to follow his plan for their lives. That's double-minded. And James is saying they are like a boat that's on a wave. They're just tossed about. There's no consistency. There's no consistency. So for, for, for us to, to allow steadfastness to have its full effect... Wisdom. We have, to, we have to have wisdom. And how do you get wisdom? You get knocked around. Wisdom is trusting God in the midst of the storm. Yes, Lord, I am going to be obedient even if I don't get what I want. I'm going to let steadfastness have its full effect. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to allow the hammer and the anvil to soften me. Yes, I acknowledge that the trial is painful, but I'm not going to run from it and, and pursue and run away from you because it looks easier. I'm going to stay in this marriage. I'm going to stay in this circumstance. I'm going to bring glory to you. No, I don't want to forgive. Yes, I want to be bitter. Yes, I want to choke this person, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to confess my sins and confess my double-mindedness when I'm tempted to not follow you. And that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. He gives us a, a, a case study, rich and poor. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, weather, and, it's, and withers the grass. Its flower fails, falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fades in the midst of his pursuit. What's going on here? Um, the trials of the lowly and the rich. The rich go through trials, the poor goes through trials. And what he's saying, whatever your circumstances, whether you're rich or poor, if you're rich and you lose all your money, that's a trial. If you're poor and you come into wealth, that's a trial. Both of those are tests. Both of those are tests. So the rich man in his possessions and the poor man without his possessions, are you going to be wise in whatever circumstances you find yourself financially? You see, the double-minded, the double-minded rich man believes that their wealth is securing for them comfort. And so if they begin to lose their wealth, they begin to panic. And they begin to do things which God doesn't want to acquire wealth. 
That's double-mindedness and that's foolishness. They're not letting steadfastness have its full effect. Likewise, the foolish poor man or poor woman believes that they cannot have joy in the midst of their poverty, so they go about every sort of scheme to, to gain wealth or resent others who have it. Either, well, either way, their poverty, the circumstance, the sun, is baking them, hardening them, and they're embracing foolishness. So James is giving us a case that eh, whether you're rich or poor, you, you're standing under the same sun. It's going to bake you or it's going to soften you. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. In other words, both come from God. He gives, he takes away. Be wise. Be wise. He goes on, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That is not you receive the crown of life, that is you receive eternal life because you are awesome. No, it proves your faith and your faith reveals its end product. The crown of life is a reward. It's not, it's not you receive a relationship with the Lord. You already have that. The crown of life is a reward. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. He tempts no one. But each person, he is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it's conceived, gives full birth, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's a lot that I would like to go into here that I just don't have time to do. I would encourage you to dig deep in terms of the word, which is tempt, and the word, which is test. They're the same Greek word. Context determines how you translate it. God tests, but he doesn't tempt. Satan tempts, but he doesn't test. In other words, Satan will use the sun, God will use the sun. The objective for Satan is to harden your heart. The objective for God is to prove your heart, soften your heart. Both of the same circumstances. Both of the same circumstances. But because of our sinful desires, verse 15, desire when it's conceived gives full birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown gives birth to forth death. That's why we need wisdom. So, well, that's not helpful. That doesn't encourage me. I need, for you to tell a foolish person to be wise is like telling a dead person to, to rise. How do they do that? Well, they can't. A fool can't become wise. A leopard can't change its spots. A person with a heart of stone can't all of a sudden have a heart of flesh. They can't just will it to happen. Well, let's all pray and go home in despair, right? No, we're not done. There's another verse. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift. What's the word? Every good what? Gift. This is something we receive. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, absolutely crucial. We'll unpack this next week in great detail. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Who brought us forth? God brought us forth. By what? By the word of truth. Which next week we're going to see is the implanted seed. The word of truth. It's the gospel. Which you heard. Which you've read. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. That Jesus Christ took on the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin. 
that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried and he was dead. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death. That's what James discovered when he met his resurrected brother. And it transformed him. That's what Paul discovered when he met the resurrected Christ. And it transformed him. Neither James nor Paul had an intellectual faith, which was simply assenting to the historical truth of Jesus Christ. But they had a living and they had an active faith that transformed them from the inside out. And that's why Paul is able to say, everything that I've gone through is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. And that's why James is able to say, count it all joy. And let steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be mature, perfect, and complete because they've encountered the resurrected Christ. Have you? If you've been coming to Grace Community Church, you've heard about the resurrected Christ over and over and over again. Have you responded in faith? Have you come to a place where you are ready to say to the sovereign king of the universe, God, I'm going to let steadfastness have its full effect. I'm going to allow you to use whatever circumstance I'm in right now, whatever circumstance I'm going to be in tomorrow, next week or 20 years from now, regardless of the pain, regardless of whether I get what I want out of life, I am going to worship you because you are worthy of worship and I yield to you because you are king. Save me of my sins and put me on the anvil and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Some of you are like, that is the worst gospel invitation I have ever heard because you just basically said, if you follow Jesus, it'll hurt. It will. And if you're under the delusion that following Jesus is, is skipping through the meadow and smelling flowers all the time, you're not listening to the gospel. And here's the truth. If you choose to reject Jesus on the basis that you might suffer if you follow him, you're going to suffer anyway. Every single one of you is going to be put in the ground. <laughs> and that, that's regardless of what you believe. What, what James is saying is, listen, if you embrace Christ, he'll take that pain that you're going to go through one way or the other. And he'll work it for an eternal weight of glory. But it's our call. It's his work, but it's our call. It's his salvation, but we have to let steadfastness have its full effect. I'm going to close in prayer. If there's any of you here this morning, you're in pain, you don't know which end is up. If you just like someone to pray over you and with you and for you, you can come forward. I'll pray. Josh will pray with you. Others will pray with you. See, Brooks, I, I don't know. Tell somebody, tell someone, and just say, would you pray with me? Can I pray with you? If today you've decided I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior, or you, I want to know more about Christ, come forward, talk to me, or talk to the person you're with. Say, I need to, come, I need to trust Christ. Help me walk out this faith. And that's what we're here for. We'd love to do that with you. So when I'm finished praying, please come forward if you'd like to pray. If you'd like to be prayed over, we'd love to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. 
And Lord, yes, we thank you for trials. I don't enjoy them. I'm not a masochist, and no one else here is either. But Lord, you allow us to go through trials, so take advantage of those and work them out for our good, for your glory. Lord, for that person here who has not yet trusted you, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day they cry out to you. Today would be the day that they say, Father, I'm, I'm in need of you. Save me from my sins. Give me your Holy Spirit and begin to change me. Give me a pardon from sin, but also your spirit that I might walk with you, that I might trust you and become wise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless, go in grace. We'll see you next week.